Welcome to Disability Inc. I'm Colin Montgomery, Senior Family Educator at Include NYC. And I'm joined today by Dr. Tom Liam Lynch, Director of Education Policy, the New Schools Center for New York City Affairs, and Editor-in-Chief of Insight Schools. We'll discuss the major shifts, innovations, and shortcomings of school reform in New York City under the past two mayors. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure having you on. You and your team at the Center for New York City Affairs wrote an excellent report in April titled Equity Means All, Not Some, Lessons from the Past 20 Years of Education Reform in New York City and What Should Come Next. And we'll have the link for that report in this podcast episode description. And clearly so much has changed in New York City's education system during the Bloomberg and Blasio administrations. And the legacies of these past 20 years of mayoral policies live on today as the city schools pivot back to full-time in-person learning and we await a new mayor. So I'm very eager to speak with you today, Tom, about the key findings of your report and to learn more about how we can apply these key history lessons you found regarding the Bloomberg and de Blasio administration's education policies and how we can apply these to further education equity in New York City. So let's get started and we'll lay out the big picture of the education landscape in New York City over the past 20 years, starting with the Bloomberg administration. So could you say a bit about what school system Mayor Bloomberg inherited, Tom? And what was his approach to school reform? How did he make his mark on the school system? Sure, um, that's a it's a great question, and it's you know having a little bit of this, more of this like in a macro context can be really helpful for uh, for families, for policymakers, um, just because um, mm -hmm. so often policies are are created in the moment, um, and so stepping back from the trees to see the forest, I think, can be really useful, and that's what we aim to do in, in the report. So what a lot of families might not realize about the um, education system in New York City is that over the last 20 years, it's, it's gone through a couple of major shifts. Um, prior to the Bloomberg administration, um, the city was organized mostly in geographic school districts with superintendents, about close to three dozen. Um, and those school districts really operated on a very local level with school boards, um, you know, making decisions much like you would see in, in other parts of, um, you know, of the country or of the state. Mm -hmm. um, one of the key criticisms there with that level of local control over schools was that it lacked a certain level of more macro accountability. Um, and so there were, you know, accusations of ongoing corruption, for example, of, you know, contracts, DOE, con when wasn't DOE contracts, BOE contracts going to like local vendors and things like that, or, or friends of folks on the board. Um, and at the same time, too, the New York City school system had, um, had been struggling to, you know, to, uh, to have high graduation rates and to, you know, to be, to be viewed as, as successful in, in kind of the, the broader public eye. And so when, when the Bloomberg administration came in, one of the his sort of theory of action around reforming the schools was that um, first and foremost, we need mayoral control over schools, meaning instead of having almost three dozen superintendents who kind of all had their own kind of geographic control with the boards and that kind of local politics, um, mm -hmm. Bloomberg wanted to centralize the authority over the school system to the mayor. So he had to request that from the state. He was granted that. And with mayoral control, as it's known, he was able to appoint a chancellor. And that chancellor kind of became the like, you know, the, uh, the, the single person responsible for the entire New York City school system. 
Um, so it wasn't a chancellor prior to prior. There to wasn't a chancellor prior. No, I mean the other education historians could correct me on that, but my understanding is there was no chancellor prior to that. Um, okay. That that role is specifically to be the appointee of the mayor, who's responsible for all. Um, hit us up in the comments if I misspoke there too. That would be great. <laughs> um, but the big the bigger lesson is that the the Bloomberg administration centralized the schools. He really disempowered those geographic uh, superintendents. And his theory of action was that was was this was that um, you know if the school system is dysfunctional and isn't serving families. We have to we have to focus all accountability, and we have to shake up the entire system. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to create a, a market-based approach to school reform. And this market-based approach, when it, what all that means is like it's we're going to make it more like shopping. We're going to think more of with a business mindset in terms of how this works. And so what we're going to do is we are going to um, we're going to create lots of smaller schools for families to choose from. And as families choose certain schools over time, we should be able to see which schools are most desirable. We'll also be looking at achievement data and things like that, test scores. And based on all of these factors, over time, what we should see is that the, these new innovative schools or school models should, should show us which ones are strongest based on the demand from families, based on the test scores. And then those those most successful models will rise to the top and will either expand those schools or will replicate their models throughout the city. And over time, um, what we should emerge with is, you know, a completely reshaped school system. And that was a theory of action. And there were a couple of other kind of footnotes that went along with it. So some of the other footnotes um, included, you know, that principals of these schools because um, now you're actually you're like doubling, tripling the number of schools that are going to be at what constitutes yeah. a school. You don't have these large comprehensive schools, for example, you have smaller learning communities. So the okay. school leaders or the principals of those schools were given a great deal of um, autonomy over their budget, over uh, curricular decisions as well. Um, and, you know, that um, with that, though, came this expectation that schools would be would especially improve metrics around test scores around serving um, underserved populations better including students with learning disabilities and abilities with uh, you know English language learners etc and so you know that was that was kind of undergirding this approach um, for for those who might not realize like that there was a way schools worked prior to the Bloomberg administration this can this can seem pretty like, pretty fantastic stuff, maybe not good or bad, but it was ambitious. It was a complete yeah. shape of the entire system to make it, um, to make it a choice based system. Um, it was, you know, it was also seen as a way to, um, it was also seen as a way to counteract what had been happening in districts across the country, which is that students who were being underserved, um, their, their needs were being kind of hidden in the data of schools where, you know, it was, if you kind of lump everybody together in terms of averages and you say our average graduation rate is, you know, 70, 80%, you're ignoring the fact that the, the other 20% who aren't graduating 
might be of a similar demographic or class or with have specific learning needs, things like that. And so this was all under the uh, kind of no child left behind under the Bush administration at the federal level, put a lot of this in motion, these kinds of these principles of reform. Um, the Bloomberg administration jumped on it and ran with it. And then when Race to the Top came along under the Obama administration, which was their signature reform agenda, a lot of these, despite the fact that one was Republican and one was Democrat, a lot of the principles actually of reform were very, very similar. Wow, that's really helpful overview. Um, and ambitious is an understatement. Uh, it's just, it's really fascinating to hear how radical the, the transformation was um, to the school system. And just following up on what you were saying about data and the kind of hidden needs of students, um, you know, you're basically speaking about issues of educational equity and inequity, right? And, and, and you know, once you shed light on um, relative performance of different populations of students, you know, how to better support the needs of students who are being underserved. So just wondering if, if there's anything more you'd like to say about uh, issues of educational equity in New York City. Uh, that, that term is so important in education reform conversations today, so. Sure. I mean, I think, and I, and I can get through to this later too with the uh, with some of the findings from the report. But you know, the the way we define equity um, is really, really, really important, and it's one of these innovations. A similar word where it has, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, it has it has this poetic heft to it that makes mm -hmm. heads nod at the table. That oh yes, we're committed to equity. Oh yes, we're committed to innovation. Um, there are so many ways to define these terms that um, when they go unchecked and undefined in conversations, I think we, we can see them be misused or we can see them become so amorphous and ambiguous that uh, they, they start to mean less and less. When we talk Absolutely. about equity in the report, um, you know, what we're especially talking about is the, the, the requirement for the public education system to serve all students well. Um, and the title of the report tries to get at that, where it's like, we're not talking about some students, we're talking about all students. Mm -hmm. And that is especially, you know, the 73% uh, of students in the New York City school system who identify as Black and Latinx. That includes the 20% who are identified as having special learning needs. Um, it's, it's including these populations that um, are year after year are uh, perpetually underserved by the system. Um, and the system in response, you know, unfortunately can, can too often play a shell game um, where it appears that progress is being made, but it's really just, you know, the moving of different priorities and monies for uh, elected officials to say that they did something uh, when in reality they did something, but they didn't do enough. Um, so yeah. we talk about equity meaning all um, because what we've seen over and over under both Bloomberg initiatives and de Blasio initiatives is we've we've seen we've seen um, elected officials doing victory laps by serving some, and yeah. it's and it's not it's about a PR that. campaign. It's not about that. Like we need to take that simple word all, and we need to make it mean something. Um, and if you're talking about equity and you're talking about public education, we are talking about all, period. Um, and I can speak more to that later on, but that's you know that's some of how we how we we come at that that word. Yeah, um, I, that's really helpful to hear. And it just it bears repeating so many times, like that is the, the metric against we're measuring, against which we're really measuring progress in the school system, right? How are we serving all students equitably? Um, and, and how are we ensuring that they make real meaningful progress and feel included in, in, in their school communities? Um, and, and just on that note of uh, educational equity, uh, making sure all students are, are progressing in the school system. I uh, just wanted to speak for a, a couple minutes about special education reform. 
within the larger uh, Bloomberg administration's reform agenda. So I know, Tom, you've, you've painted kind of the structure that there's kind of phases to the Bloomberg reform, uh, reform uh, agenda. Do you mind just speaking a, a bit more about that and where special education reform may have fit within that? Sure, thanks. And um, when, it, when the Bloomberg administration um, took, the, took the helm um, of the city school system, I was in the classroom um, at that time. And one of the things that um, you know, I kind of experienced firsthand as a teacher who, was, who had a CTT partner and was working with students with different levels of IEP needs and, and, and whatnot. Um, That's co-teaching, right, CTT? Co-teaching, sorry, thank you, that's right. Um, the jargon, the jargon that, that we so easily employ. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, one of the things that you saw under the Bloomberg administration very aggressively was, a, was a raising a level of accountability um, in terms of creating systems and structures to support, um, you know, to support their equity initiatives. And this included in special education. So as a teacher at the time, for example, um, what, what, you would, what you experienced was um, the, the Bloomberg administration launched this system called ARIS, for instance. And the whole point of ARIS, is, and it was a multi-million dollar, I think that the, the, the figure on it was close to 80 million when all was said and done, which for those without a point of reference, is is just like mammoth like that's a titanic sum um, even for a system like this but the point of aris was to make student data more accessible to teachers and so as a classroom teacher i actually had a system where i could log in and i could see all sorts of learning related information about students including test scores including other kinds of official learning needs and things like that, depending on how they were noted, um, all in a single system. It also provided a way to for me to have very specific conversations with my co-teacher um, who, who worked in addition to working with me, she also worked independently with the, um, with the students with special learning needs. We had all this information at our fingertips. Um, and okay. so this, you know, the kind of theory of action and the theory of action behind the Bloomberg administration was like, if we, if we, if we identify the key data points that are important to this work, and if we create scaled systems um, that can bring these kinds of data points to, you know, to the right people at the right time and be used to, as both a support resource and also as an accountability lever, um, you know, that's what we're gonna do. And so from a special education perspective in the classroom, um, you know, that, that's what I had, I had experienced uh, firsthand. Yeah, um, oh, it's, it's really, really valuable uh, history there. Just what it was like on the ground, you know, um, with this uh, increased reliance on accountability and data and helping students make progress within the classroom. Um, That's right. And just kind of, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, I was just, just going to add too, like, I know that, you know, we've talked before in the past about like there, again, like my, my um, we didn't focus on special education per se in the report. A lot of what I, uh, what I know about that era is from my work as a classroom teacher and other work since, but you know, you'd pointed out with more of a macro special education perspective that simply this, em this emphasis on students with, with learning disabilities being educated in their neighborhood schools was like, mm -hmm. was a, so this idea that I was in this, this co-teaching setting where the emphasis was on not just not having special education students in their own room with one teacher all day long, but actually mm -hmm. like in as many cases as possible, like, you know, creating the support mechanisms to, to, for them to be learning 
with the, you know, quote unquote, general, you know, learning population that was from, from your perspective, it sounded like that was, that was a, a major shift too at the time. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's something we, we speak about a lot at Include NYC. Um, it really, it, the, what's called special education reform uh, was launched in the fall of 2012 citywide. Um, so I'm happy to speak about that a little bit. Uh, and it has major implications on that idea and that emphasis on kind of inclusion of students with disabilities in, in community schools. Um, but there's also some challenges related to it. Um, and those challenges uh, relate uh, in no small part due to the major admissions uh, changes under the uh, school admissions changes under the Bloomberg administration. So the key idea of the special education reform was to uh, under the Bloomberg administration was to um, put an emphasis on students with disabilities having access to that least restrictive environment, which is this key concept under the federal special education law. The idea is a student with a disability should be educated in a classroom or in a school that they would attend if they didn't have a disability as close to home as possible, right? So that idea of really having access to that um, you know, natural setting uh, as much as possible. Um, and as a result, um, but prior to the Bloomberg administration, schools uh, could select, you know, which students with IEPs they, they wanted to serve because uh, it depended on what programs they may have. And, and so schools had greater discretion, but they could essentially discriminate against um, whether to accept or deny students. And some schools um, would become, um, you know, kind of larger in the students of, uh, with disabilities that they serve. They'd have more specialized programs, whereas other schools would have more uh, scaled back programming. But with the special education reform, it, it really put the emphasis on all schools to have a wide variety of special education settings. So schools couldn't reject students just because of what was on their IEP, which is a, a great commitment, right? And it, it um, the special education reform required schools to uh, set, um, thinking about educational equity, set um, standards where they're admitting students through the admissions process at elementary, middle and high school that they would admit a population of students that was uh, on par with the borough or district average of students with disabilities. But in practice, the, you know, that commitment to admitting perhaps more students with disabilities within a school or having a wider variety of special education programming was undercut by the Bloomberg administration's real emphasis on school choice and admissions policy changes. And I know your report speaks a lot about school choice. We'll definitely <laughs> keep unpacking that as we, as we move along in our conversation. Uh, but just to kind of speak to some of the drawbacks, um, which we're still living today, because this special education reform has continued on through the de Blasio administration, um, uh, especially around these admissions policies. If you're thinking about elementary school students, um, the goal was to evenly distribute elementary school students throughout the system, you know, in those less restrictive settings. But new admissions policies were put in place that would uh, really tie students um, to zone schools, but we know there have been multiple reports over the past decade, going back even further, uh, that there's a real issue with um, racial segregation within the schools. So um, the you know, good intent of the special education reform uh, paired with this um, district-based and geographically-based admissions policy actually led to the result of increased racial segregation in elementary schools. I don't want to say that special education reform is the only reason for that, but it did contribute to that, to deepening segregation in the schools. And if we're thinking, well, in middle school and high school, there's supposedly greater um, 
greater access to school choice for students. So a student could apply outside of a, a geographic zone within their district for middle school, or they could apply to some citywide programs, right? Um, and for high school, um, admissions are truly citywide. You're applying to a Department of Ed high school, but that, um, you know, supposed school choice runs automatically in tension with uh, the fact that a lot of schools are very selective. They have these uh, admission screens um, for grades, attendance, students might have to submit an essay or something like that. I know you at Inside Schools are absolute pros at <laughs> laying out, you know, how admissions plays out across um, various levels of schooling in the city. Uh, and in effect, certain schools um, would kind of replicate the system that was there prior to the special education reform. Um, that's to say, schools that were more competitive, which had these admission screens, would have fewer students with disabilities getting accepted because most often the, the students getting accepted, the more high performing academically um, the students were, the, the, the less likely they were to have an IEP. So uh, whereas other schools that were less selective would oftentimes have a student body that had uh, greater levels of students in poverty and students with disabilities. So it's really interesting to kind of follow through that tension and, and see the kind of you know, the unfinished work around educational equity and um, it's still living with us today, particularly around special education. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the, the other thing that I've observed in, I've worked for um, probably thousands of hours at, um, at schools around the city over the years. One of the things too is like you, you see school leaders being trapped in some of the parameters that are set for them. Um, they're mm -hmm. being judged mostly on, on relatively shallow metrics around achievement mostly. Um, uh, so meaning just test scores at the state level. Um, and what ends up happening is they get caught in a game too that they have to play. So, you know, so a school might put some admission standards in place because they're trying to just ensure that the students who come in, most of them will do well enough on the tests because the tests, regardless of what the rhetoric is, the tests matter immensely to the principal being perceived as doing her or his job well. At the same, at the, in a, on, a, on kind of the flip side, you'll see schools that are really struggling with their, so let's, so let's say they're struggling with their test scores and let's say that they're, you know, they're mostly taking students from, uh, they, you know, from, from the neighborhood and they don't have mm -hmm. much of an admission screen, right? The, the zone schools or sometimes they're, they're, give, they're called a, short, a shorthand. What you can also see is you'll see principals who will take a disproportionate number of special education students and English language learning um, students because mm -hmm. they come with additional money. So yeah. what will happen is like the, what the principal knows is like, I need more resources to serve my community one of the ways like I can I can bring in more money for my budget to serve the whole community is by just opening the gates as broadly as possible for students with um, who, who come with different money, you know, on the on the kind of on the fiscal level. So it's I've seen it at both ends of the spectrum in terms of, of how the of how that that inequity um, plays out. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Um, and just thinking about how you know reform has continued to play out over the past 20 years. Let's let's turn to Mayor de Blasio. Um, and he fundamentally shaped New York City's school system following a different vision. Yet he never sought to challenge some of those deep structural reforms and, and problems, you know, we just shed light on, um, which I don't want to say the Bloomberg administration was responsible for all of the problems, you know, that the Blasio administration has run up against. Um, but certainly some of those reforms, we're talking about school choice, for instance, um, you know, exacerbated some of those underlying issues. So just thinking about the de Blasio administration's education reform vision, how would you say, Tom, that it was different or similar from the Bloomberg administration's? Sure. Great question. And I think it's probably most helpful to kind of start 
it's hard not to compare as a way to make sense of the de Blasio administration. So I'll probably sure. start doing that. I would also just note too, that like, you know, when it, when it comes to the level of segregate, uh, segregation um, and inequity in the New York city school system, the, you know, the, the fundamental issues cannot be reduced to the schools. Um, but it's, we're talking about, you know, systemic racism and injustice. We're talking about poverty. Um, and to whatever extent that, the conversations about schools ever exclude those factors in terms like we're always having a partial conversation, which can be can be enriching so and valuable as this one will be. But for those mm -hmm. listening, you know, to re to reduce the challenge of schools and post secondary pathways and career opportunities, like that whole kind of scope, we really can't talk about it without like in any sort of depth or holistic way without also talking about systemic racism and and poverty. Um, yeah. With those limitations, so right? Totally. With those limitations in mind, um, the 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 Blasio administration actually um, tried to confront some of those realities around the discourse anyway. So when talking about systemic racism, talking about poverty um, in, in their actual reform agenda. So, mm -hmm. you know, whereas the, the Bloomberg administration really led with this idea of family choice, of school choice, their slogan was um, uh, was the students first, uh, CFI, children first, children first. Um, you know, they, the, the de Blasio administration really came out, um, you know, in, in favor of like, you know, we, whereas Bloomberg was all about, yes, children first, it's a school, it's a business model, school choice system. Like we all, we value community. We value culture. We value the, what is going on within the geography of a neighborhood. And we see that as an asset for supporting schools and families. So they came in, they, but it's interesting because both both Colin actually focused on this idea of like empowering families, but they mm. came at it in very two, in very different ways. And yeah, so for de Blasio, it was around, you know, equity means um, really doubling down on the on the on the talents and gifts and commitments of, of community and the relationship between community and schools and families. And so what they did is they they reinstated the school districts um, throughout the city. That there were always school districts, but they re-empowered them is a better word. Um, and so they re-empowered the school districts. The so superintendents had um, you know had kind of control again. Um, okay. So so a big change in the structure again. Huge, like huge. Hmm. And you can't like this is it's like you know this is a massive shift that you just can't turn you know when you want to. But this was one of the key things yeah. um, that they did. Um, they also, they reinstate, it's interesting, under Bloomberg, they kind of, they, they avoided the conversation around um, teaching and curriculum um, yeah. in favor of talking about data and performance. The de Blasio administration kind of brought back the curricular and pedagogical is the fancy word for it, authority to the central DOE. So there were teams of me, just meaning there were teams of people, there were teams of like English teacher experts or math experts who were creating curriculum and resources again for the schools where not a lot of that was happening under the Bloomberg administration um, in, with any seriousness. Um, so with these kind of moves they made in the system, um, you know, you saw a couple of signature initiatives emerge. So like, so, you know, if you step back and you say, well, all right, so we're the de Blasio administration and we're, we're going to reinstate the power of superintendents. We're going to double down on the relationship between families, communities, and the schools. We're going to then inject schools with resources to provide what are sometimes called wraparound services, right? So in, you're not just going to school for academic, but you're going to go to school as well. You're, you know, you can get um, help, you can get help, you can get lunch, you can get all sorts of yeah. other kinds of supports that you might need, guidance as well. Um, the community so, schools model. What's that? 
there's a community schools model. That's right. In the city, That's right. right? That and so, that. you know, and some schools are labeled community schools and that there was just, there was an overall valuing of those kinds of services for as many schools as possible. That's why during the, when the pandemic hit initially, it's why you saw the, 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 the Blasio administration kind of very quickly and almost naturally said, oh, we'll use the schools as a way to distribute meals to whole communities. Oh, okay. It's because yeah. they were, they were already like in that paradigm of like thinking of the schools in this way. Um, it was also why you would see there was a heavy emphasis, obviously, on universal pre-K and 3K, like that being one of his signature initiatives. Um, you know, it, it all aligns with this idea of like, it isn't just about K-12 academic, it's about the whole child as part of a whole family, as part of a whole community, and we need to do as much as we can to try to support from as many angles as possible. Um, and it and to, to that extent, that's, that's where they, they tried tackling a bit more explicitly those, 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 those contributing factors of racial injustice, those contributing factors of poverty. They try, they try to tackling that more directly uh, via those, those sorts of initiatives. Um, so whereas you know, those were some of the key kind of um, differences and kind of changes they made, it, it also meant though that like there was, there was a particular way where the de Blasio administration's hands were tied when it came to trying to operationalize those values. So those, you know, that vision that they laid out for schools um, around equity and excellence, I think they worded it at one point. Um, when it came to operationalizing it, they had certain successes, pockets of successes. Um, they struggled to achieve things at scale in the way that the Bloomberg administration did. Remember scale, there are 1800 schools. There were 1.1 yeah. million students. There were 75,000 teachers. There's over 100,000 when you include like staff and others like in the system, like it's a massive system. So anything you're talking about doing in the New York City schools has to be done at scale. And there is no equity without scale. So even yeah. though there were pockets of initiatives that, that had some success and traction within the de Blasio administration, they struggled with scale. What they also struggled with was, was this. They inherited a school structure that was focused on school choice on families choosing schools for their children. When you log into the system as a parent to select your school options for, for your child, you're looking at like a dozen different slots that you, yeah. have, you have to put in there. So there, there was this, there were, families have this hefty task, and this is what we try to help all families out with at Inside Schools, like they have a hefty task of identifying the best schools for their kids and enough of those schools so that they can actually put them into the system of school choice. The problem though with that is you have this residual um, school choice system from the Bloomberg administration. At the very same time, families are hearing from the de Blasio administration that your family matters, your, com we, your community matters. It's about your local school and it's about the nonprofit organizations within your community, and we're doing everything we can to make the schools, you know, within your community, really this the the heart and soul of um, the heart and soul of of educating your child. Oh, and at the same time, when it comes, you know, select as many schools as you can, up to twelve, yeah. and they can be all <laughs> around the city. Like it's 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 incongruous these two paradigms. And that's yeah. something too that the De Blasio administration um, really struggled with reconciling. Um, when when push came to shove. Wow, um, it's really helpful to hear that. Uh, you know, I I first started teaching in 2013, which is kind of 
just passed the wave of, I mean, we didn't even speak too much about charter schools. There's so many, so many twists and turns in school reform in the city. It was just kind of passed the wave of, of charter schools. Um, and then, you know, my first year in the classroom, de Blasio became the mayor. So I've just been, I just personally been trying to make sense of, you know, these massive shifts. So it's so helpful to hear that kind of inherent unresolved tension that around school choice that the de Blasio administration never quite broke through on. Um, and, and I know you and I had, had spoken previously about, you know, there could have been an approach to a very tactical PR way to perhaps connect the two to really sell, you know, the best school is in your neighborhood. The best school for you and your family is really here, right? We have, we have incredible schools all across the city. You don't have to, you know, um, be seeking outside your district automatically for that. But that seemed like that messaging never quite, you know, uh, came through um, school, that school choice. Um, that idea of kind of, oh, there's a scarce amount of good schools that kind of prevailed uh, at the end of the day. That's right. And, uh, you know, and I, and I um, you know, I, I would just, I guess I would point out too that it can be, it can be tempting in conversations like this to give the current administration a pass because of the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic ushered in a whole host of challenges, you know, that, um, that the administration wasn't expecting. All true. However, um, you know, this administration was also fairly committed out of the gate to disregarding anything that looked, sounded, or smelled like the Bloomberg administration. And this was part of what, what kind of pushed us to write the report. It's like, you, we cannot have another um, mayoral or school leadership come into the city and just, out, just ignore everything or dismiss everything that's been tried already. Because when you do, you're dismissing and disposing of the, the sweat equity of school leaders and teachers and families in the system already. You know, yeah. so we had a pandemic hit in, uh, you know, March um, and you had you had a school system that didn't even realize that the Bloomberg administration had established a 50 million dollar online learning platform that was still working. Maybe it wasn't the right fit for the solution, but there was no evidence that they even knew it existed because they dismissed and disregarded anything that was too, you know, Bloombergian in nature. And we can't. Some of our listeners, um, some of our listeners might not know that that platform. What's that platform called? It's called iLearnNYC, and it's there's, okay. you know, it's, it was part of a massive innovation initiative that I was a part of under the Bloomberg administration. Was it perfect? Nope. There were a lot of issues with it in a whole host of different ways. Etc. The point, though, is that like you're the largest school system in the country, sitting yeah. on a fifty million dollar online learning platform. The whole system needs to go into into online learning mode in the middle of a crisis. And the the recommendation from administration was vague and was around Google Classroom and Zoom. And then Zoom was like that people were told to stop using. Like it was a mess. Yeah, no, there was, I certainly no, remember. That's right. There was no there was no sense that there was a digital learning strategy. There was no sense that there were kind of technology. Mm -hmm heavy reforms in place or policies or strategies in place. And in part, you know, based on my experience within both administrations, that's because there was a there was a skepticism of the role of technology in schools, in part because Bloomberg leaned so heavily into it. Yeah. Um, and and just you mentioning that like there are solutions in 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 the reform agendas from the past two mayoral administrations that could really help um, lay out a path toward equity in the future. So, uh, um, you know, given all that we've explored, uh, I'd love for you to, to speak a little bit more about uh, the recommendations from your report and uh, how future city leaders and our next mayor can can really uh, take take your 
your all's advice, you know, based on this this deep research? Yeah, I mean, so one is I think the 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 next mayor needs to define equity as eighteen hundred high quality schools, like period. It's every and if it's not eighteen hundred and there's a way to consolidate and that's like you know you do it humanely and what but it's like the point is like every school needs to be of high quality. Like Absolutely. you're not any 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 definition of equity other than that is is just a shell game that's trying to get an administration through another election cycle. And as like families in the city should find that thoroughly unacceptable from from my standpoint. Mm. Um, you know, the next administration coming in should also they should they should look at what's in place and what's been done already and try to see where there's ways to like leverage again that sweat equity that was already put into. Um, to school improvement, like to, to leverage that. One is called the, the framework for great schools, which the de Blasio administration put in place as a way to, to help school leaders align and strategize their, um, their school improvement you know, over time. It's a research-based framework. It was customized by re education researchers from like NYU, Harvard, Brown. Like it's, it's really smart. Um, and so like the, the, the impulse of a new administration to throw it out because, it, because it's from the other guy um, that should that impulse should be resisted at all costs. Um, I think something else that certainly has emerged is like we if you're talking about equity, you have to be talking about curriculum with specificity. Um, and the the both administrations, I think, have really fallen short um, in terms of, you know, providing instructional and curricular vision and leadership. Um, and when it comes down to it, you, I don't think you, you can't be talking about true equity without to be talking about a, a, an intentionally designed uh, curricula, curricula framework, at least for the New York City schools, that honors the, the, the culture and talents of our children and communities, that looks at international Absolutely. standards and expectations and really weaves Absolutely. it together in a way that provides teachers the resources they need um, to, 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 to teach at their, at their, at their best. Um, it yeah. also, and also on an economic front, um, by having a bit more of a curricular vision, it would allow the city and schools to be more efficient and effective with their curricular resources they purchase. The city has already started making some moves in this direction on the heels of the, um, of the, of the, of the federal money that's coming in. They've announced a mosaic curriculum that they're starting. Yeah, to yeah, I saw that. Um, mm -hmm. So there is some promising practice in terms of movement in that direction but there's a lot of details that need to be worked out. And there's a lot of ways that sometimes people define curriculum that I think falls short of, of what I'm talking about when I say emphasize curriculum. Yeah, no, that's, that's so great to hear that. I, as a former special ed teacher, I can certainly implore listeners that uh, having curricular support that's centrally directed, that isn't you know telling you, here's how you say the words in the classroom, but having a real robust curriculum that's designed at a, central level, it would be so helpful. And we're thinking about culturally responsive and sustaining education, the city and state level in New York. You know, these are really, really important concepts that are the lifeblood of the school system, but it has to be done right. If you're putting, you're shifting all the emphasis on teachers or uh, just school-based administrators, a scattershot approach, you know, it's not gonna lead to real CRSC and real equity and, 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 and students feeling like they're part of real valuable, you know, learning communities. Totally, Colin. And just, and just to, just to play into that for just one moment, like curriculum does not mean, this is for especially families and officials listening, like curriculum doesn't mean the standards. Like that's yeah. part of it. The curriculum yeah. is not the skills. That's part of it, right? It's like, what are the authentic opportunities we're providing for our students to be challenged with real world, meaningful questions? 
And then how are we across our different disciplines and different grade levels, how are we creating learning opportunities and experiences for our children to engage with those questions and to create knowledge and artifacts of understanding? Like it's a, it's a rich experience that has, it has a place for all of these different kind of uh, topics and, and things that, that, that different players in the system value, but it, it has to weave them all together. Um, and my biggest concern about the curricular initiatives in the city when they're not laid out in sufficient strategic detail from the outset is that it's going to result in like unboxing or creating some new resources that are scattershot, you know, yeah. that are that are plugging holes, but that they're they're lacking a specific kind of trajectory and vision towards a North Star of that that answers the question like why do we educate our kids in New York City in the first place. And if whatever is being laid out doesn't lead with that. Then it's going to fall short of what it uh, of what it could be and of the good it could actually do for the school system over time. Yeah, that's so important. Um, I I just want to keep <laughs> keep talking about um, everything you know that you've found in your report and these recommendations, Tom. But unfortunately, we have to we have to wrap up shortly. Um, so just kind of on that thread of you know this importance of scaling up, rising um, rising to the to to the real occasion of creating robust citywide curriculum. Are there any other recommendations that you would see uh, the mayor-elect needing to do kind of from the jump of, of a new administration? Yeah, I guess I, you know, I'd give one, I like to say, like I try to live with my head in the clouds and my feet on the ground. So we'll do like a, a clouds in the ground <laughs> kind of thing, right? So on the, on, the, great. on the clouds front, I think it comes down to like, how do you create 1800 high quality schools? or every single school is high quality, and what's the role that curriculum plays in making that happen? With a, you know, with a, with a, a real curricular vision from the central offices, but that's informed deeply and contributed to deeply and, and a, a site of collaboration among school leaders, teachers, students, families, et cetera. So that's number one, that's up in the sky. But it's like, if you, if you, if you are working toward that, I think you, you shift up in a, in, a, in a dramatic way, you shift up um, what it means to reform schools for the long haul, and what it means to honor the the talents um, and the and the and the and the contributions of, of communities and, and kids. Um, with my feet on the ground, um, so if I was, you know, if I bumped into the next mayor on the street or the next chancellor on the street, and they said, like, give me one <laughs> thing I can do that's concrete that you think would have a disproportionate of you know impact uh, on schools, I would I would I would say CEPs. So that's there. Those are the comprehensive education plans. And what those are is every school in the system is required every year to fill out this document that's called a, a comprehensive education plan. The, that, in theory, lays out for every school as a public document what they're going to focus on in their school, why they're going to focus on it, what curricula that they're choosing in order to do it, what special services and programs and partners are they bringing to the table. It is the nexus document of what is going on in schools. And currently, mm, okay. those documents are filled out in too many cases very quickly, yeah. uh, without a lot of seriousness. There were documents that principals fill out that are then PDF and they're posted online in ways that make them thoroughly unsearchable or and borderline useless. Um, what mm -hmm. I would love to see is like reform the CEP process so that it aligns with your commitment to equity, so that it answers specific questions families have around what's the curriculum in this school that's being used, what are some of the key resources that are being used, how are you creating post-secondary pathways and options for children and considering that, like make the align the questions for it and create more of a database structure where, where those CEP plans 
can be can really be embedded and used by families to make informed decisions and it increases the, the it increases the conversations families can have with schools around curriculum around what it what are you creating for in terms of learning experiences for children and what are you doing to support your teachers in bringing those to life and the extent to which um, the school system avoids those conversations or making those conversations possible with families the the extent to which they do that is the extent to which that they're at the end of the day they're 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 saying they're trying to reform schools and create a more equitable school system but they're not yeah. We have to be talking about curriculum and about instruction, about what's happening in classrooms. And we have to be helping families um, become confident in like in asking those questions and making those yeah. observations. And that's part of the work that we're gonna be doing at Inside Schools um, over the, fall, the next year is like, we're, we're, we, we see that as a key point um, to focus on in terms of how do we help families, not just navigate the school system for choosing a school for their kids, but how do we help families become, you know, gain curricular confidence and to know when a teacher is giving feedback to a student that's really meaningful and rich, and to know when the teacher is giving feedback that is like that's like perfunctory and useless. And and yeah. how do we help families see that? Because the more that you do that, I think there can there can be healthier conversations that happen at the school level, and you're really fixating on the classroom, which is where for individual students and families, you know that's that's really the point of change and reform that we need to be seeing. That's where we need to see improvement. Um, it's not just in these macro policies, but again, equity means every school, every school means serious curricular and instructional conversations, not just from Tweed, meaning the central offices of the DOE or the mayor's office, but we also need to be seeing uh, more, more healthy pressure coming from and confidence coming from families when it comes to curriculum and instruction. Thank you so much for that, Tom. So take note, listeners, <laughs> definitely read the report and our city leaders, our, our next mayor-elect, please heed those suggestions, the feet on the ground, <laughs> the head in the clouds, um, you know, suggestions, uh, th those are so important. And uh, I really hope everyone listening has a stronger understanding of how much the New York City school system has changed over the past 20 years. Uh, and hopefully there's some very helpful reminders and, and uh, suggestions moving forward for our elected officials. Uh, and hopefully we, uh, by engaging around some of these key discussions, we can really start to work toward an equitable future in our schools that students, families, staff, and New York City's all deserve. So thank you so much for taking the time to educate us on all these topics, Tom. It's been so informative and thought-provoking. <laughs> That's an understatement. Thanks so much, Colin, for having me. And if anybody wants to talk more, you can, you know, you can find me and in Inside Schools online just by Googling Tom Liam Lynch or Inside Schools. If there you have corrections or questions or want to talk more, I welcome the dialogue. I don't have all the answers um, at all. Um, but what I and it's not necessarily about having always having the answers. We're at a point where we need to be asking the right questions. Um, you because go. you know, the right answer to the wrong question is the wrong answer, no matter how you how you, you spin it. Um, and we need to make sure we're asking the right questions and we're focusing attention on the right things going into this next administration. So I welcome dialogue in, in any form. Thank you. Really appreciate that, Tom. Um, thanks so much to everyone for listening. Tune in next time for another great episode on Disability Inc. And please also check out our past episodes. Take care, everyone.